turn back to uh-huh. Can you please turn back with me to Genesis chapter 25? Genesis 25. And we're looking at verses 19 to 34. Genesis 25. And uh, you know that it's an outline of uh, where we're going on the uh, sheet there that you received as you came in. Those of you who were with us last year uh, will know that we've uh, uh, beat, we did a series on uh, Genesis last year. Uh, we stopped at the halfway through chapter 25 uh, and started our way back uh, in Genesis. Um, and just, just uh, for the benefit of those who weren't here, or actually for the benefit of those who were here as well, um, let me just uh, remind you of the story so far. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world. And he made our ancestors, Adam and Eve, to live and work in the Garden of Eden. They were God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule. Genesis 2. But in Genesis 3, they rebelled against God. And so instead of blessing, we received curse. Relationships spoiled between human beings and God, between human beings and the world, between human beings and each other. And in Genesis 4 to 11, we see that things are getting worse and worse. Human civilization grows, but so does sin. And in the Tower of Babel, human beings are once again trying to usurp God by creating a society without Him. But God frustrates their plans and scatters them. And instead, he revealed his plans for a new society. His plans to reverse the effects of the curse and to bring in blessing. Planning to bring God's people into God's place, under God's blessing and rule, once again. And he would do this through one man and his descendants. And so in Genesis 12, God called Abraham. And he made him some very great promises. He promised him many descendants, they would be God's people. He promised his descendants would have the land of Canaan, God's place. And he promised to bless him. And not only bless him, but through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 12 to 25, which was our series last year, we saw how those promises were played out in the life of Abraham. Various threats to the promises, various things that could have gone wrong. Well, to start with, Abraham had no children. And then he selfishly put his wife in terrible danger, not once, but twice. And he messed things up by having a baby with his wife's maid. And yet God showed his faithfulness. In spite of human sin, in spite of human failure, God was still on track to keep his promises. And so finally Isaac was born. He survived a near sacrifice, grew up, and was eventually found an appropriate wife. So that when Abraham died, he had a son who would inherit the promises. A son who in fact had kids, who would in turn, one of whom, would be an heir to the promises and through whom the promises would continue until they would finally find their fulfillment 
in Christ. So the scene which we're about to look at starts at what verse 19 calls the generations of Isaac. Which really means we are looking at Isaac's family, especially his children. In particular, the child of Isaac who would carry the promises to the next generation. Come with me to chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Padan Aram was where Abraham's relatives lived. It was up in the north part of Mesopotamia. Uh, details of how Rebekah came to be in the promised land with Isaac were given in a nice long story in chapter 24, which we won't go into again. Uh, we'll visit Padan Aram and some of those people there when we get to chapter 28 in a few weeks, so don't worry about too much about them for now. But the important thing is that Isaac has a wife. But having a wife is not good enough for the promises to keep going, is it? His wife needs to bear children. And so here is another problem. Here is another threat to the promise. Rebecca was barren. So what can Isaac do? No fertility clinics or anything like that in those days. All he can do is pray. Look at 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, that reminds us again of the story of Abraham, doesn't it? We are seeing this family, the ones who have received God's promises, need to keep on depending upon him in order to fulfill them. They can't do it themselves. Abraham and Sarah are way past their reproductive years when Isaac was born. Rebekah, she's barren. But God intervened and God answered Isaac's prayer and gave him children. Now, God could have done it a different way, couldn't he? He could have just given them children, just to cut it, to fulfill the promise. But he chose not to. Instead, Isaac had to pray and ask him, and in response, then only he gave. Sometimes God waits for us to pray before he gives up things as well. So we learn to depend on him. So we know where it's coming from rather than just thinking it's automatic all the time. But more importantly, remember, this is the line of promise. So at the beginning of the line, God will show that the fulfillment of the promises depends on him. And at the end of the line, where the promises come to fulfillment in Jesus, that will become even clearer. Jesus was born of a virgin. To show for certain that this was not from human effort. We could not have produced a Savior. He, he was given by God. And so all along in this saying, it is God's grace, it is kindness that keeps the promises going, that gives us a Savior we need. We have entirely depended upon Him. So, Rebecca is pregnant. And inside her she feels fetal movement. 
But these are violent, painful movements, far worse than she would have expected. Verse 22. The children struggle together within her, and she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She didn't know she had twins, right? No antenatal ultrasound in those days. Uh, but God told her there are two babies inside. And He told her the violence that she felt was a foreshadow of the struggles that would be between these brothers and the nations they would become. Verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Notice that God already had a plan for these children. They would become a separate nation. And yet it was the younger one who would be dominant. The nation that comes from him will be the stronger one. And that's exactly what happened. The younger twin, Jacob, would eventually become the nation Israel. The older twin, Esau, would become Edom. And there would always be tension between those two nations. When the Israelites would wander through the desert 500 years later, the Edomites wouldn't let them pass their territory. Later on, when Israel had an empire, Edom would sometimes be under Israel. Sometimes they would be able to fight and break free. And when Babylon finally attacked Judah and destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were helping the Babylonians. Edom herself would eventually be destroyed. And the few surviving Edomites would be the ones who, who take refuge in Israel and live there. And finally, when Jesus, the descendant of Jacob who will be born the true king of the Jews, came, remember who the first person to try to kill him would be? King Herod, an Edomite. Struggle would continue. Interesting, isn't it? God had decided this before either of the babies were born. And God had decided the promises would go to the younger one and not the older one. Wasn't based on which of them was more virtuous, which of them was stronger or cleverer or anything else. It was, it was God's choice. The only thing that would distinguish them at birth is who is born first. And even then, God didn't choose the conventional thing and, and, and take the first one. So the chosen one couldn't even say that he was chosen by virtue of being older. In the end, it was simply God's choice. And God, being God, had every right to choose. And that applies to us too, doesn't it? God's chosen people are the ones who inherit his promises. The promises to Abraham, the promise of land and people and blessing, they apply nowadays through what? The fulfillment in Christ. Jesus is the place where we meet God. He is the true people of God. He is our ruler who rules us by his word and every spiritual blessing is found in him. And as his people, we look forward to the time when the, when the promises of Abraham, which were fulfilled in the Old Testament, are fulfilled perfectly at the highest level. When we who are in Christ are God's people in God's place. God's place being the new creation where we will be with him forever. 
where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, where God's blessing and rule comes through His immediate presence unmarred by human sin. That's the promises that we have received in Christ. And God in His grace has made us, unworthy as we are, to be ones who are heirs of those promises. If you are in Christ, then those promises are yours. But they're only yours because God chose you before the foundation of the world to belong to Him. He knew you before you were born. Just like He knew Jacob and Esau. You're not a believer today because you are better than other people or more virtuous than other people or more clever than other people. No, 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 no. You were chosen. The technical term is elected. Because like Jacob, God loves you. He chose you, not because of anything you've done. I don't know why God chose you. I don't know why He chose me. I know it's something to do with His goodness and His mercy and His grace. Not to do with us. His mercy alone. I cannot understand. All we can do is say thank you. Now, of course, some people will say this is unfair. Why doesn't God choose everyone? Well, God doesn't have to choose anyone, does He? God didn't have to choose either of the twins. He could have done with both of the twins what He did with every other baby at the time. Just choose neither of them, said Herod the Prophet. The fact that God chose the younger one is no injustice to the older one simply his mercy to the younger twin. And the fact that God chooses some for salvation is not injustice towards those who are not chosen. Those who are not chosen are dealt with in perfect justice. But the elect, the chosen ones, are given mercy. That is great. Mercy is not justice. It's over and above justice. It cannot be demanded. It cannot be expected. Listen to what the Spirit says to the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. Next slide. Can we have the next slide, please? James? James? Thanks. Romans 9. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election may continue, not because of works, because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's from another part of the Bible later on. And what did he say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. He causes mercy. Uh, can we talk to you later if you want to talk more about that? We'll talk about it more when we do Romans 9 to 11. It's a series of planning for next year. Well, Rebecca's pregnancy progressed. The time came from the baby to be born. Rebecca in verse 24 of chapter 25. 
When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Right? It's a bit surprised, huh? For some people. Right? Behold, there were twins. Wow. Actually, it's not that surprising because why? God already said. Just like God. And so when we, when, we, uh, when we read that, then we have confidence that God is going to fulfill the other aspect of the prophecy. Because He's already fulfilled that one. Oh, then the first one comes out all red. His body like a hairy cloak. So they call his name Esau. I'm not sure exactly what Esau means from a context. It probably means hairy. He's foreign not here today. On the other hand, uh, Jacob is born. Verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his, sorry, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. Jacob's not an uncommon name. Uh, it's a short form for uh, a very common name, uh, Jacobel. Yeah, may God reward or protect, uh, but it's shortened form to Jacob, which can mean to, to see someone by the heel, or to go behind, or to betray. Uh, Cheetah. So, the uh, so baby Jacob is known as to be holding Esau's heel, probably as they lay together after they were born, rather than during the birth process itself. Uh, and so Jacob from birth is, is characterized as a grasping, cheating uh, competitor. Like if you're running, you, you know, pull the, the shirt of the person running in front of you. Uh, a grasping, cheating competitor. Quite unlike, of course, his greatest descendant who, though he was God, did not consider equality God with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself. The scene ends with a comment. The end of verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, those of you who have done or are doing the Bible overview class, right, you may notice that this is an inclusio, isn't it? Right? Uh, that is, the narrator returns to something at the beginning of the passage, at the end of the passage, to form a bookend uh, for, that, for that bit of, uh, of passage. Uh, and this is it. Because right? as we read this verse, when he says he was 60 years old when she was born, immediately we are reminded of the beginning bit, verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to be his wife, and then etc. And then you think, hang on. When the kids were born, he was 60 years old. And when you go back and you look at the thing, he was 40 years old when he married her. How long has he been praying for this baby? 20 years. Uh, we didn't realize that when we read verse 21, did we? No? Rebecca was barren, Isaac prayed, God granted his prayer. Sounded so easy. And we didn't know at the time that it was 20 years gap between when Isaac started to pray and Rebecca had the baby. That must have been a painful 20 years. 20 years is a long time to be praying for anything, especially a baby. Yes. You pray and you pray and nothing happens. You see the biological clock ticking away. That's a worry, isn't it? Infertility is often a painful thing. You know, couples struggle with it. Uh, many couples do. And it seems unfair. You hear kids, on the one hand, kids being born, unwanted, dumped, 
And on the other hand, you've got godly couples who will provide wonderful home and Christian instruction and not able to have kids. Yet in that, we have to trust God's provision. We have to trust God's plans and purposes, that He loves us, knows what is best for us. No matter what the path that He has set before us, to know that His intention is to make us more like Christ. Sometimes it's a matter of waiting for God's timing. Sometimes it's not God's time that we would have children at all. For what God has promised in Christ is ultimately better than even a wonderful blessing of children. And furthermore, as New Covenant believers, we do not multiply God's people as in the Old Covenant by making babies. The New Covenant equivalent is what? Making disciples, isn't it? Now, that's how God's people grow in the New Covenant. So by all means, pray for kids, physical kids, if, if you're trying for them. Children are still a great gift from God. But all of us should be praying for spiritual kids as well. And back here in Genesis, Isaac, well, he, sh- he should have been praying with pretty, pretty confidence, isn't it? Because he knows that God's plan is to answer his prayer. Uh, we know that because God made the promises to Abraham. And Abraham would have told him those promises. But he still had to pray, he still had to wait. Twenty years. Well, in the next scene, things go really fast here. The next scene, verse 27, the boys have grown up. Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau is this hunter guy, man's man, gives his dad meat, right? Because dad likes him up. And Jacob is mummy's boy. He's a quiet, stay-at-home kind. And so already there is tension, isn't there? But don't be deceived about Jacob. Still waters run deep. Jacob might be the quiet, stay-at-home mummy's boy, but he's also crafty and ruthless. And we see him in action in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, must be Rebecca going to cook now. Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Edom sounds like the word red. So what does Jacob do? Oh, here you are, brother. Have some stew. You look really tired and hungry from all your hunting. Yeah. No. Verse 31. Jacob said to him, Sell me your birthright now. What? Birthright was the right that Esau had as a firstborn. As a firstborn, he had a right to a blessing. He would have expected the promises to Abraham would flow through him. And Jacob is offering him red stew. Esau wants some. And Jacob is demanding he, treat his, he trade his birthright for the stew. What? What should he say? You crazy or what? Yeah, what, what? What kind of question is that? What kind of, what kind of proposition are you, 
But look how Esau responds. Verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? It's melodramatic, isn't it? Right? This is Esau, the drama queen. Right? Oh, I'm about to die of starvation. If I'm dead, I'm not going to have a birthright anyway, so I may as well give up birthright and have some food so I can stay alive. No. Surely he wouldn't be about to die for starvation, huh? If you're about to die for starvation, you won't be walking in from a hunt, would you? I'm sure he was very hungry. But to make it a matter of life and death. My kids say that. Oh, I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm not starving. I just ate a lunchtime. <laughs> sure, he was hungry. But to make it a matter of life and death, he was just rationalizing his decision. He really wanted that red stew. And he didn't really care about his birthright. And so he justified his action by this dramatic excuse. And friends, we can think of all kinds of ways to rationalize sin, can't we? I have to do it, there's no choice. I'll lose my job otherwise. God didn't really say you can't do that. In fact, I can think of a reason why every verse in the Bible that says that doesn't actually apply to me. We're going to be married soon anyway. She did it to me. I'm just applying the golden rule back to her. Just a little fun. Won't harm anyone. I'm doing research. my life. Sure God wants me to be happy. It's okay, someone else will drive. All sounds very plausible when it's in our heads. But if you tell it to someone else, it sounds as stupid as Esau's excuse. Get your brothers and sisters to rationalize, to check up on your rationalizations, huh? Jacob, of course, wasn't going to help his brother. He was there trying to take advantage of him. He was putting the pressure on The pressure on this. <laughs> we got sound effects today. <laughs> Wait till we get to Mount Sinai in Exodus. <laughs> what is Jacob saying to him? Verse 33. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Esau got his red dal and his drink and Jacob got the position of blessing. What a trade. And the passage ends with this indictment. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his birthright. Remember how God chose Jacob rather than Esau? Right from the beginning? He's sovereign, isn't he? His plans always come to pass. 
Yet he didn't do it in such a way as to deny Esau responsibility in his decision making in this matter. God didn't take the birthright away from Esau. Esau, Esau did it. Esau despised his birthright. In his greed, he traded it away. He's responsible for his actions. And yet it was God's sovereign plan all along. But the fact that Esau so easily capitulated surely means that he, he hadn't really believed the promises. Surely he, he did not have faith in God's word to Abraham. Abraham died when the twins were about 15. They would have heard the promises of him. His actions show that he valued the bowl of soup more than the promises of God. Jacob, on the other hand, he's a scoundrel. But he knows the value of the promises. He believes. He was prepared to go to any length to get them. And this is not the first time he would be sneaky and devious. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But God would eventually change him and mold him and mature him. But whatever the case is, no matter where he is at this point, no matter what kind of person he is, when God starts working in him, he was, he was chosen by God. And we know his future is going to turn out right in the end. But, still, he hasn't learned yet to trust God to fulfill his promises. Still trying to take things into his own hands. At least he believed the promises. Who got a better deal? Well, who got a better deal in this transaction all depends on whether the promises to God of God to Abraham are real. If they are not real, then Esau got the better deal. Empty promises that mean nothing on one hand versus a pot of stew, I don't know what it's worth, maybe five ringgit equivalent. Well, frankly, you may as well take a five ringgit bowl of stew, aren't you? But if the promises are real, then they are of eternal significance and of infinite value. And all the stew in the world won't match up to that value. And as you read the rest of the Bible, you know that God's promises are real. God did fulfill them. Jacob is a clear winner in this transaction. And friends, that is the same for us. Every day we are tempted to swap eternal blessing for temporary gratification. Anytime we could decide to throw away what we have in Christ and seek something in the world that, that, that is only now. If the promises that we have received in Christ are empty promises, then we may as well be like Esau. Empty promises are somewhat comforting, but if I have to choose between them and, and something that gives me something concrete that I really want right now, I may as well take what I want. Doesn't I? But if the promises in Christ are real promises, if they are true, then they are worth more than anything, anything else in the world. The promise of a place in the new creation, of being with God's people, in God's place, under God's blessing and rule. That is the promise of Abraham for us. 
we are the heirs of the living Christ and those promises are real. God fulfilled his promises to Abraham in Israel's history. He fulfilled his promises to Abraham and Jesus Christ and we can be absolutely sure that he will fulfill his promises to us in the end. So don't despise your birthright. The promise of a place in the new creation is worth the whole world, more than the whole world, put together. Don't trade your promise for anything, anything at all. Nothing compares to the promise you have in Christ. And to give it up for anything else, you will be an even greater fool than Esau. You in danger of being such a fool? What is it that you're tempted to give up the promises for? To the guy? To the girl? Is it your career? Is it sex? Is it a habit? A hobby? An inheritance? The admiration of others? Or just the opportunity to sleep in on Sunday mornings after a heavy week at work? How cheap can you get? I have a friend who became a Christian a few years ago, much to the disgust of his family. When persecution didn't work, they tried bribery instead. One of his rich relatives approached him with a bag full of big notes. And that's just a down payment, he said. It was promised millions. If it was just sign a piece of paper to say it was all a mistake. You can believe what you want. It's just sign here to say it was a mistake. He tells me he considered it for half a moment. And then in his mind's eye, he saw the fire of hell. And he refused the offer. Are you for sale? your birthright for sale? What does your salvation mean to you? If your birthright is not for sale, then don't muck around with it. Stop rationalizing. If you say the promises mean everything to you, then act like it. Live like it. Don't put them at risk by reckless behavior. Don't exchange your birthright, your salvation, your promises for, for anything in the world. Nothing is worth it. And if you do, then I promise you, one day you will regret it. One day as you burn in hell, you will look back and lament that salvation and eternal bliss were in your very hands and you let it go for what turned out in the eternal, eternal economy to be nothing more valuable than a bowl of stew. You will regret it, but it will be too late. Let me leave you with a warning the Spirit gives in Hebrews to the people who are tempted to turn away. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Thank you that all scripture is God's grace and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We pray that your spirit will breathe your words would indeed be correcting and rebuking and training and teaching. Where we need to understand your ways and your purposes more deeply, help us to do that. Help us to appreciate you as the sovereign God who rules with all the end from the beginning. To appreciate your grace and your kindness to us in Jesus. Completely undeserved in our hand. And where we are in danger, we pray that you rebuke us and put us back on the right path. Where we are behaving recklessly. Where we are not taking your promises seriously. Where we are endangering ourselves, we pray that you will, that you will correct us. Help us to appreciate the value of what we've been given in Christ. Never put us in jeopardy. But to keep on trusting Him, obeying Him, and being changed into His image. And may we never be like you saw, who gave up His birthright for something nice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.